The scripture reading this morning is 1 Corinthians 8, 1 through 13. Now concerning food sacrificed to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Anyone who claims to know something does not yet have the necessary knowledge, but anyone who loves God is known by him. Hence, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that no idol in the world really exists and that there is no God but one. Indeed, even though there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as in fact there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. It is not everyone, however, who has this knowledge, since some of us have become so accustomed to idols until now, they still think of the food they eat as food offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not bring us close to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if others see you who possess knowledge eating in the temple of an idol, might they not, since their conscience is weak, be encouraged to the point of eating food sacrificed to idols? So by your knowledge, the weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed. But when you thus sin against brothers and sisters and wound their conscience, when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food is a cause of their falling, I will never eat meat again, so that I may not cause one of them to fall. The word of the Lord. Well, we are kicking off the year this year at Mount Olympus by using the lectionary text from our Revised Common Lectionary to help us explore the question, what does it mean to be a new creation in Christ? How do our lives change in response to what God has done for us? And if we're lucky, we'll actually spend the rest of our lives asking this question together. And if we're honest, we'll probably get about a thousand different variations of the same response. Right? Because we are one body of Christ, but each of us is created with different ways of listening and knowing God and participating in his kingdom. The way that I know and love Jesus may not be the same way that you know and love Jesus. More importantly, we know that we have one God who is always consistent, but as one poet once wrote, Christ plays in 10,000 places, which means that he's always up to more than we can understand. So it can get complicated to figure out what it means to be a Christian, what that looks like. And it's not always going to make sense or be straightforward, but we keep trying in the same way that the church has been trying for 2,000 years. And thankfully, while we do this, scripture puts us in good company. So today we're in the company of the early church in Corinth uh, around the middle of the first century. 
they were also trying to figure out what it meant to be followers of Christ in their context and with their particular concerns. And we heard about the Corinthian church already uh, a couple weeks ago when Pastor Chris uh, was preaching. They were the ones that were caught in this plutonic, dualistic thinking that said, well, you know, the body and all the material things that are here, well, they're evil and they will pass away, but the spiritual things, the things are, uh, that will live on are the ones that are redeemed. That is what is good. And so they had this idea that then what, they could do whatever they wanted with their bodies because their bodies didn't matter, right? And in this sense, they were wrong. <laughs> What we do with our bodies matters very deeply, the Apostle Paul says, because of everything that Christ has done for us, coming and being incarnated in a body and being resurrected in a body. So we treat our own bodies and each other's with respect and compassion. They deserve that as the temples of the Holy Spirit. So today Paul is addressing a different but a similar issue, an issue where they had some misplaced assumptions. But this time the topic is food. Is it or is it not okay, the Corinthians ask, for us to eat meat that has been sacrificed to idols or eat meat in these temples? This is the particular question they're wrestling with because at this, the situation at the time was that Corinth was this massive and very important city within the Roman Empire. It was a center of trade and politics. There was a lot going on. It was also the home to many, many temples to the gods of the Greco-Roman pantheon. So you would find temples of Apollos and Aphrodite, Hermes, Poseidon, all of these dominating the city. And the worship of these places was deeply embedded in the culture. So it was the practice of the people of Corinth to make regular offerings in these temples to the gods, depending on which god they wanted to worship and what they wanted from this god. And more and more, they would make these offerings too to the Roman emperor. And then the temples themselves had extra rooms in them so that the wealthy worshipers could then have feasts and banquets with their family and friends where they would eat this food that had just been sacrificed on their behalf. And any food that wasn't then consumed at these feasts was distributed throughout the marketplaces in the city and would be sold to the general public. In fact, this was most, where most of the meat in the city came from. And so in the midst of this, we have a group of new believers who have heard Paul and they've believed his message that actually there is only one God that we know in and through the person of Jesus Christ. And so they say to themselves, well, where this meat comes from then doesn't actually matter. No idol in the world really exists. Food will not bring us close to God. And so that's what they've written to Paul. And they were right. I mean, Jesus says it's not what goes into a person's mouth that defiles them, it's what comes out, right? And Paul reinforced this too, and he says we're no worse off if we do eat and no better if we do. Food isn't going to make the difference. So what they have here is not actually bad theology, like with their understanding, their misunderstanding of the body and the resurrection. They actually have what we might consider a correct and mature understanding of the faith at this time. So what's the problem then, right? If we know these idols aren't real and we're sure about our convictions about this one God, then why shouldn't we eat this meat, right? Especially when not doing so could draw unwanted attention to us throughout the city. And Paul says, you know, you have a point. You're right. In God's eyes, this may not make a difference. You can be alone in the comfort of your home eating meat, wherever it came from, thanking God that he is actually the one that provided it for you, and that would be fine. But there are other people, other believers, 
who are watching what you are doing, and it may be causing them to stumble, right? Because the folks who were poor in Corinth often didn't have enough money to purchase the meat that was given out in the marketplaces, whether it had been offered to an idol or not, uh, and it was very difficult to tell. So the only time they typically ate meat was when it was given out at public religious festivals throughout the city, when it was distributed, and these were always associated with one of the Roman gods or with the emperor. And so many of these poor believers in the church only had this association in their mind between meat and this worship of idols. And so if they then saw other believers in the church participating in eating this meat or in these feasts at the temples, then maybe they would feel encouraged or pressured to do so as well, right? And that would stir up an issue of conscience for them. Like it could cause them to think uh, or to do in their minds what was actually offensive to God. Or it may cause them to assume that maybe God doesn't mind or care about all this idol worship in the first place. In either case, the behavior of these Christians, these strong believers, was actually pushing other people further away from God. That's the issue that Paul's trying to address here. And so at this point, we might ask ourselves, well, how is any of this relevant to us, right? We don't uh, have a bunch of temples in our city that are calling us to foreign gods. We don't do animal sacrifices. That's not our context. So what does this have to do with us? And this is where we need to hear what Paul's getting at as the deeper issue underlying this particular issue. Because at the end of the day, his argument is not about meat or idols, right? It's about what we are doing with the knowledge that we have. See, when I was growing up, I assumed or was taught that uh, being a believer was about having the right answers. And that was what faith was about, knowing exactly what I believed and why I believed it and what it said in scripture. It was about not just being able to live my faith, but being able to defend my faith over against uh, anything that anyone would say so that they could never put me or this message, this knowledge that I carried about Jesus to shame. The opposite of faith in my mind was doubt, right? Because if you know what your faith is grounded on, you should never have any doubts. That was the idea. (laughs) And I thought that since I had this great knowledge of God, and the gospel, it was my job to share it, right? To convince other people of uh, Jesus being exactly who he said he was, and I needed to go out and love people, of course, but I also needed to tell them what I knew. They needed to hear this, and one of the greatest fears that I had was that someone was gonna ask me a question about faith that I didn't have the answer to. That kind of terrified me. (laughs) And so I read all the books, I grabbed all the things off the shelf, mere Christianity, the reason for God, the case for Christ, all of these texts that were going to give me what I needed to know to refute any questions that came at me, right, to defend the faith. (laughs) And I knew there were a whole group of people that were experts at this too. There's an area of Christian study called apologetics, Uh, It comes from the Greek word apologia, which means a defense or a reply. And the premise of this is is straight out of the book of 1 Peter, uh, which Mike was referencing before. Always be ready to make your defense to anyone who demands from you an accounting for the hope that is in you. I wanted to make my defense. And folks that I knew that were trained apologists, that's what they did, right? They were skilled at defending the Bible over and against anyone who would argue with it, whether that person is atheist or agnostic or even other Christians, right? They knew what it said in scripture, and so they attempted to out-argue 
the people, the best of the best in their other fields. And these were people that I admired. But then some cracks started forming in the wall, if you will, uh, around the time that I was in college. And I had to wrestle with some of the very real questions and doubts that started creeping up in my own mind that I could no longer pretend weren't there. Because my hope had been built on knowledge and conviction. And as it, I started asking these questions, things th started to unravel. And it didn't seem like I had that anymore, that same conviction, at least not in the same way. And even when I got up the courage to ask some of my trusted friends or mentors these questions that I was wrestling with, I heard the same sort of uh, black and white answers or platitudes that I would have given myself a few years before. Right? And it didn't make me feel any more encouraged or comfortable. It mostly just made me feel small, like there was something wrong with me for not understanding this. And it sort of made me wonder about a God who would just demand this rigid dogma that seemed callous sometimes. And now I will say, like many of the people that I asked, they are the most wonderful people that I know and love still to this day, right? They have a wonderful faith. They would go above and beyond to help their neighbor. But there was still this sense that what made a Christian a mature believer was standing on these Christian principles and never wavering that you know what you know, and that's what you believed, and that's where you held. And this, I think, is the issue that Paul's running into with the, the church in Corinth. Yes, you may know something significant and life-changing and important, and you may even be right, but that's not actually the most important thing, right? The most important thing isn't a principle or a belief, it's a person. It's the very real person of God. And his knowledge of you matters much more deeply than your knowledge of him or anything else. And by extension, it is also the person who is standing right in front of you in a conversation. Right? They are what matter. The people are what matter. And we might say, of course, of course, we say this. We, we know that God is important, right? We know that these other people are important. And so wouldn't I be doing them the most good, do the most loving thing as their neighbor to share with them what I know by convincing them of this God that I believe in and the way that he wants us to act? Isn't that what we're supposed to do? Right, Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey the things that I have commanded you. And so shouldn't we be loving people by giving them the right knowledge? Or in this particular situation, they might say, shouldn't these new believers in Corinth know that their faith is weak and that they actually can eat this food and that it's fine? Like, wouldn't that be better for them? And yes, to some extent, <laughs> you're right. Seeking and understanding and sharing what you understand is part of what we're called to do. That's important. Knowing and believing is important. But how you share with another person about God, or about anything else for that matter, matters just as much as what you are sharing. The person is more important than the principle. That person is a person that Jesus loves. Right, because I, I think if we're honest, we all know that it is way too easy for knowledge to kind of go to our head, 
right? It's very easy for it to puff us up and make us feel superior. And we start to believe, consciously or not, that we can kind of act as the savior for folks in this particular area, right? I have something to share with you that will make you as good of a person as I am, or at least will give you the right perspective on things. And this can be problematic, because if we're not careful, that becomes antithetical to what we're actually trying to achieve. I mean, have you ever come closer to Jesus because someone has beaten you in an argument about God or about faith? Like, I certainly have not. <laughs> in fact, just the other day, I took a phone call in my office from a random person that uh, I didn't know. I had never met them before. Uh, and they proceeded over the course of 10 very long minutes to uh, throw scripture verses at me to tell me about why my faith in a triune God was ridiculous and that even if it was right, I was personally working against God's plan for the world because the Bible clearly states that women are not able to teach. Um, man, did this guy know his scripture too. He was good but I can tell you that by the end of that conversation, I was not drawn any closer to the God that this person believed in or toward his perspective. Instead, it made me feel almost ashamed of the harm that has been done to people by the church in the name of being right. Because that's not how Jesus operates. He didn't come to beat people over the head with texts from the Jewish scriptures to tell them how they had gotten it wrong. He taught about the compassionate love of God by showing up as the compassionate love of God. He claimed that he didn't come into the world to condemn the world with his knowledge and try to change hearts that way, but instead he came to save it through his death and resurrection, through self-emptying love for the other person. Knowledge puffs up, Paul writes, but love builds up. It's not just our knowledge that matters, it's our ethic, right? It's how we communicate and how we share and how we embody what we think we know. <laughs> because at the end of the day, the medium is part of the message, right? If we're trying to communicate a gospel that is good and loving, but we're doing it in a way that makes someone else feel small or ashamed or lesser than, if we see them as a problem to be solved and not as a person to be loved, then we're not accomplishing our gospel task at all. We're actually doing harm. So when I hear someone slinging verses or using the Bible to beat someone over the head about faith or about politics or money or sexuality or anything else like that, my first thought is, I wanna go to that person's church because they have all the right answers about God. My first thought is, if that person is supposed to be Christ-like, then maybe Christ is really angry. I mean, I don't know if you saw the news that came out just in these last couple weeks, but there's new Pew research that shows that the folks that identify as religious nuns, say they have no religious affiliation, are now the largest religious category in the US <laughs> beyond any of our denominations. Most of these people, when asked, will still tell you that they believe in God or in some sort of higher power. They just don't want anything to do with the church. And I can't help but wonder if that doesn't have something to do with how we treat each other and how we treat the people outside of our walls or the people that disagree with us. 
if the God we represent doesn't more often come across as either angry with anyone who disagrees or indifferent to the sufferings and the doubts of the people in front of us rather than like Jesus. Later in 1 Corinthians, Paul writes, if I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels, but if I don't have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and knowledge, and I have all faith so as to move mountains, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. Instead, love is patient, love is kind, Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. And it bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love sees the person as more important than the principle. And it seeks to be known by God more than to know all the things about God. It humbles itself in order to honor and lift up the other person, even when we think that they're wrong. That's how we embody the gospel. One commentator named Charles Campbell put it like this, theology, even good theology, can become divisive and damaging apart from love for God and neighbor. St. Augustine's words apply. Whoever therefore thinks that he understands the divine scriptures or any part of them so that it does not build the double love of God and our neighbor does not understand it at all. The medium is the message. We are new creations made through the Holy Spirit to embody the love of Christ. So how do we move forward? What does that look like? Uh, Father Greg Boyle is a wonderful contemporary teacher of mine in this area. If you've never heard of Father Greg, he is a Catholic priest and the founder of Homeboy Industries, which is the largest gang rehabilitation program in the U.S., or in the world, I'm sorry, based out of L.A. And he has written several books. Uh, one of them is called Barking to the Choir, The Power of Radical Kinship. And in his intro, he says, in, he writes this, in a recent New Yorker profile of American Baptists, the congregation's leadership resigned itself to the fact that secular culture will always be hostile to Christianity. I don't believe this is true. Our culture is hostile only to the inauthentic living of the gospel. It sniffs out hypocrisy everywhere and knows when Christians aren't taking seriously what Jesus took seriously. It is, by and large, hostile to the right things. It actually longs to embrace the gospel of inclusion and nonviolence of compassionate love and acceptance. Even atheists cherish such a prospect. And he continues by saying, in my earliest days, I used to be so angry. In talks, in op-ed pieces, in radio interviews, I shook my fist a lot. My speeches would rail against indifference and how the young men and women I buried seemed to matter less in the world than other lives. I eventually learned that shaking one's fist at something doesn't change it. Only love gets fists to open. Only love leads to a conjuring of kinship within reach of the actual lives we live. That's embodying the gospel. And today when he speaks, Father Greg uh, usually takes one or two of the homies, as he calls them, uh, with him to his speaking engagements to share their stories. And many of these guys are big and scary looking, um, covered in tattoos. 
And one such person one time was Mario, uh, who he took with him to speak to college students at Gonzaga University in Washington. And Mario, in particular, was terrified to speak in public, but anyone else that saw him would have considered him perhaps terrifying because this man was tall and covered in tattoos up his arms and even across his face. <laughs> and he was able to share his story in this place. And then Father Greg shared his particular piece. And afterwards, um, as they were having a Q&A after Mario has talked about all of the violence and abandonment and abuse and all these things that have happened to him, um, a woman stands up uh, with a question for Mario and she says, you, know, you say you're a father and your son and daughter are starting to reach their teenage years. What wisdom do you impart to them? And uh, he's standing there on the stage in the midst of tears and just says, you know, I just don't want my kids to turn out to be like me. And this young woman who could have thought to herself, yeah, I hope so for their sake too. You know, here's how you could get your life back in order. She could have had all the right answers and knowledge to share with him. Instead, she said, why wouldn't you want your kids to turn out to be like you? You're gentle, you are kind, you are loving, you are wise. I hope your kids turn out to be like you. And everyone in the entire auditorium just stood up to clap for this man. You know, sometimes when we come face to face with another person, we are forced to recognize that our assumptions, whether they're about faith or the world or even who this other person is, they come into question and we realize we might not actually know as much as we think we do because every person has a unique way of loving and seeing God. And we learn that despite all of our differences, we may actually have something to learn from one another. Even if we perceive the other person as weaker in their knowledge or their character, even that person deserves love and grace. Even they may have something to teach us. And just maybe, God is doing something far more beautiful in the space between us, in the relationship that is being created than he could ever do through a particular sharing of our knowledge. Right? The goal is to see yourself in the other person and to find that kinship there, to find God present in the space between you. And I know that there are plenty of avenues in our lives where we feel or we may think we know that people are just plain wrong, right? They're just wrong and it would be so much better if we could just correct them, right? This could be in our workplaces, it could be in our schools, it could even be in and throughout our churches. I mean, very likely this year it'll be someone who is on the other end of the political spectrum from you that you deeply and wholeheartedly disagree with. It can be very hard to put our knowledge and our convictions aside for a moment in the name of showing love. But that is what we are made to do. Build relationships first. Put the other person first. And then go from there and see what happens. We may have to humble ourselves as Christ humbled himself in order to love God and our neighbor with the best that we have. But when we can do that, and with God's help we can do that, then we become part of this message, part of this new creation that we're trying to share. We show up as Christ showed up. And that is worth more than all of the knowledge in the world.
Amen. Lord, we are so grateful that you have called us, not only that you've called us together, but that you've called us beloved. We know that you draw us to you, and that as you came and walked in the world, you led with love, you led with compassion, despite the fact that people's lives were so incredibly messed up, and many of them believed so many of the wrong things about you. But God, you built the relationships and you call us to build relationships and to cross boundaries and borders and to show your love and compassion and respect to every other person because it's in the love between the relationship where hearts are changed and where your kingdom is coming. We thank you and we love you. In Christ's name, amen.